Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Welcome to the Forum, live streamed worldwide from the Leadership Studio at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. I'm Dean Michelle Williams. The Forum is a collaboration between the Harvard Chan School and independent news media. Each program features a panel of experts addressing some of today's most pressing public health issues. The Forum is one way the school advances the frontiers of public health and makes scientific insights accessible to policymakers and the public. I hope you find this program engaging and informative. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to today's forum on the health and economic concerns of rural Americans. I'm Joe Neal. I'm a deputy science and health editor at National Public Radio, NPR, and I'll be your moderator today. We're going to be discussing a wide range of concerns that rural Americans told us about in a recent poll that we conducted with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Harvard Chan School. You're going to be hearing some surprising results today uh, from that poll, and I hope it will lead to a spirited discussion. Uh, we're also going to talk about some innovative solutions that could um, help out many rural communities. And I should also point out that next Thursday, November 15th, is National Rural Health Day. So it's an auspicious moment that we convene this panel. Before I go any further, let me introduce our uh, panel, our distinguished panel. Starting from my immediate, immediate right uh, is Bob Blinden. Bob is a professor of health policy and political analysis at the Harvard Chan School and the Harvard Kennedy School. Next to Bob is Ted Strickland. Ted is a former governor of Ohio. To Ted's right is David Terrell. David is executive director of the Indiana Communities Institute at Ball State University and also of the Rural Policy Research Institute's Center for State Policy. And next to David is Katrina Badger. Katrina is program officer for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. This event is being presented jointly with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Harvard Chan School. We're streaming live on the websites of NPR and the forum. And we're also streaming on forum and YouTube. I'm sorry, on Facebook and YouTube. We'll have a brief Q&A at the end, so there's still time for you to email your questions. Uh, the address for that is the forum at hsph at harvard, sorry, the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. You can also participate in a live chat that's happening on the forum site right now. Now to our panel. The poll I mentioned asked rural Americans uh, what they see as the biggest problems in uh, their communities today. We asked this toward the end of the summer um, in uh, over several weeks. We expected to see that jobs in the economy uh, would be among the top concerns, and uh, we did indeed find that. But we were also surprised to see the magnitude of concern about opioids and drug abuse. Uh, the federal government has recently expanded uh, funding for uh, drug prevention and treatment, as you may know. Um, and so we wanted to bring you the government's point of view uh, first. 
about that program and what it is aimed to do. Uh, so we'll have a clip now from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Every day about 175 Americans die of drug overdose, and the majority of these deaths are caused by opioids. The opioid epidemic is truly the crisis next door. It's really like pushing a boulder uphill. And with the addiction crisis, we're seeing kids as young as nine years old that are using. That's the population that we're losing. 15 years ago, if, if you had told me that we were going to have to have a drug task force and tactical response team in Greene County, I'd have looked at you and told you you were nuts. We can no longer pretend that all of rural America is Friday Night Lights. There are a lot of challenges in the rural areas. From a transformative standpoint, there's got to be modern connectivity from healthcare access, telemedicine, to many other types of 21st century needs. This issue is a very high priority for the administration. Secretary Purdue really sees this as more than a health issue. This is a matter of rural prosperity in these communities. Working together, we will end the stigma of addiction, defeat the opioid epidemic, and overcome the crisis next door. Of course, that was a clip from the federal government's U.S. Department of Agriculture. We'll no, we, we will no doubt be hearing more about that response in our discussion today and uh, rural America's views toward getting outside help from various sources, the federal government, state governments, and or other organizations. But first, let's uh, find out more about the specifics of the poll. Bob, what, uh, what are the main findings? Uh, so first, the survey is quite unusual. It's aimed at giving voice to people's lives. So it doesn't ask about the country, it asks about your own life, uh, your kids, and the community you live in. So all the questions are about that. And so the findings are surprising. If you're in the polling world, you rarely ever see people say that the biggest problem in their community is a health problem. And that's the opioid thing is just quite unusual. Uh, and my colleagues here said, oh no, we'd expect this, but actually it's not. Uh, this is very, very unusual. If we can have the first, uh, just PowerPoint, we'll do these very quickly. Uh, so uh, this is, again, people are asked in their own words, no list or anything. What is the top problem in the community you live in? And as you could see, uh, uh, opioids and drug abuse uh, and economic concerns are top and in Appalachia. Uh, I've been trying to learn to pronounce it in a Middle Western way. Uh, uh, for that, it, it's the overwhelming problem. So uh, this epidemic, which 10 years ago, you just would not have been discussed uh, moving your way through. One in four people 
uh, we interviewed knew somebody personally that was suffering from opioid and, and drug abuse. And the second thing is economic concerns, which is what most people, if you watch the elections, the people talked a lot about. And we are talking about people when asked about their, the community they live in, 55% uh, of them said the economy where they lived was fair or poor. So these are people looking uh, across the street and not seeing ver very hopeful uh, point of view. Uh, but uh, there are surprises when you actually uh, talk to people. So if you follow the national news, and no disrespect to some of my colleagues, there's an impression that everybody is despondent uh, living in these communities. So we just have the next uh, uh, PowerPoint. Uh, so it turns out that half the people living there believe that these very big problems can be resolved in five years. They're, they are much more optimistic, and the other half uh, uh, don't. So uh, a, a big uh, critical issue is, uh, again, when you interview in rural America, uh, there's a great sense of self-reliance on neighbors, communities, church groups. And you ask people, are you going to need outside help? And you actually expect the answer is no we are going to deal with this. It turned out when you think about opioids and the economy, the answer is yes. So uh, most of the people who thought something would be turned around wanted outside help. And, and the next PowerPoint is, is a surprise. If you uh, follow uh, politics, uh, you would have sort of expected that they would have thought private groups or companies or something would be where the outside help. That's what they would want. And basically six out of 10 people said, uh, we expect to have the outside help principally from government. A state was the largest, but essentially it, this is a political environment that isn't very high on government. But when it came to their two top problems, they actually expect uh, a government to play a much larger role for it. And I think that's what the panel is going to discuss about what it is they, they couldn't or do. And, and the uh, last is we took a number of reports which had uh, governors and commissioners on which said, how do you turn around life in rural America? And we just gave them a list and said, which ones are the most important? Uh, uh, last PowerPoint. Um, so uh, what you have is that the top two are something which uh, would create long-term job opportunities. And it was very clear people are not looking for short-term start up some jobs for uh, WPA. They want something that really sticks. And the second thing is they want something done that would help their schools out. The next tier, uh, people check a box called improving access to healthcare. And if you don't follow it, and you talk to people, it's usually three things. So in this case, th they're worried about the rural hospitals going under. So that falls. Secondly, they're worried about medical groups that they went to last year, they're not gonna be there. And thirdly, a share of rural America doesn't have enough health insurance to pay their bills. And that falls. And the last is, and the panel's gonna discuss this, people know they need a set of skills to be uh, viable economically 10 years from now. I don't think they know what those skills are. They just know they need something. So that is the really uh, big uh, takeaway. The, the opioids is an incredible finding if you've surveyed across America. That just doesn't usually uh, show up. Uh, but the priorities economically and the fact the, they're so concerned, they want to know what's the other sources of government. That's pretty much the takeaway. But they didn't know how to go beyond this to solve the problems they faced. Thank you, Bob. So what you're saying, let me just follow up. Uh, 
briefly uh, what you're saying. If you did a national survey of all Americans, opioids wouldn't show up. But when you focus in just on rural America, like we did in this poll, it was a surprising finding. So when you ask uh, people about the top problems facing the country, it does not show up as the top problem. Now, anywhere, it's on a way down, down on a list. Now, people think about their own communities differently, so for it, but it just, it, you would expect it on a list where you ask people, now tell me about your health problems. You would think that would rank high. Not that when you would face everything else the community would face, uh, it, it would be tied with economies which have been depressed many, uh, for many years. So this epidemic is having an impact in how people see things locally, uh, which is just not, uh, been recognized unless you're very close to these communities. Well, that, that leads me to Ted. You were governor of Ohio, and you saw firsthand the impact of opioid abuse and other drugs uh, of abuse, uh, the loss on rural communities. Tell us about your experience. Well, uh, coming from Ohio and especially growing up in Appalachia, I, I was not surprised at, at these results. Um, nationally, according to the CDC, in 19 or in 2017, we lost about uh, 72,000 Americans to um, drug overdose deaths. Uh, in Ohio today, we are losing about 14 people per day, um, and um, the sharpest increase, obviously, has been in in most recent uh, years uh, the use of fentanyl and synthetic opiates. Um, so it's a huge problem. Um, I think it's a, a, a national public health uh, problem, and in my judgment, it hasn't been sufficiently recognized as such. Um, so I'm not surprised with your results, Bob. Um, I, uh, I, I believe that rural areas have particular problems when it comes to these kinds of issues, both health care and economic opportunities. Um, we need treatment. Um, we need medically assisted treatment, we, we need long-term treatment, we need trained treatment professionals. Um, but there are other aspects to this problem that are related but equally important. Uh, housing issues, uh, transportation issues, food insecurity problems. All of these are characteristics of, of rural areas, especially the Appalachian area, and I think uh, uh, at least tangentially, if not absolutely directly related to the, uh, to the opioid problem. Um, recently we had in Ohio uh, a ballot initiative which would have dramatically changed how uh, individuals who were uh, apprehended, arrested uh, for drug offenses would be handled. Um, that they would be uh, dealt with locally. Uh, they would not uh, uh, in most cases be charged with a felony. Um, and um, initially there was strong support for that, and then questions came about regarding how it would be implemented and, and whether or not it would be good for our state. The bottom line is it, it failed in the most recent election, but uh, I am absolutely convinced that, that uh, both political parties and an array of Ohioans recognize that at least the way our state is dealing with these problems need to be um, really given careful thought um, um, because when a person uh, is, is caught up in an addiction, there is no, there is no uh, quick, easy answer. 
a treatment, uh, effective treatment, tends to be uh, long and arduous. There are relapses, and um, and it is affecting. And we're going to hear more about this, I think, from David. It's affecting the, the economic conditions uh, in in all parts of Ohio, and that's certainly true in the Appalachian area. Well, I think our poll did show that the two, well, it didn't show, but it, it highlighted that the two are very interconnected. And David, uh, you've studied what it takes to reinvigorate local economies. <coughs> what have you learned right. about what does and doesn't work? Well, I, I think the first thing we need to address is um, there is a train of thought, and I think it's a very valid train of thought, that the opioid crisis is really a symptom of a lot of other deep-seated issues, including the economy the local economies. And there are several reasons for that. And while we can't ignore those, that, the symptoms of not only the opioid crisis, but other public health issues uh, in rural communities, we really still need to understand and deal with that root cause of, of the local economies. And um, for many, many years, decades, the de default mechanism is, is the mindset that if we just create jobs, that'll solve our problems. And the evidence is showing that this enterprise of business attraction uh, in and of itself is not the panacea for communities. Um, there, there are a lot of other deep other issues that we need to deal with. And we're not saying that uh, job attraction should go away, that activity should go away. It should be dealt with and pursued maybe at different levels, but you, you can't have successful job attraction in, unless you uh, have strong, viable communities. And, and the, the bottom line is, is that evidence is showing that um, jobs go to where the people are. It's not people go to where the jobs are. That switched somewhere in the 70s, and the trends are stronger and stronger as we move on. Jobs go to where the people are. People want to live in viable communities that have uh, strong civic infrastructure, strong physical infrastructure, um, and strong and robust schools. Uh, the, the research shows that time after time, strong, robust schools are critical to that along with, along with those other infrastructure components. Um, and uh, as an aside, we are finding that people will pay for that when you talk about tax issues, but that's an, another issue. Mm -hmm. For sure. Katrina, your work at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation uh, focuses on issues that affect health and well-being in rural America and community development. Uh, what do you see in these poll results and what do they suggest to you about how to move forward? So in addition to the issues that have been already discussed quite a bit, I think with the opioids and, and economic opportunity needs, which are certainly important. I want to make sure that we elevate one other finding that I think is really important from this poll, which is the importance and strength of social connection in rural communities across the country. And we know from research that social connectedness between families and neighbors and neighbors looking out for each other and helping in times of need really leads to better health and longer, longer lives and better health and well-being uh, than those folks that ha 
are facing greater social isolation. And so that social connectedness, I think, is a really important finding to elevate from this poll, although it doesn't stand out as highly um, in, in some of the, the top findings um, that, that get a lot of the national attention. Um, and I would also elevate that that social connectedness is really important and connected to economic opportunity and economic mobility. So for example, mm -hmm. if we look at Raj Chetty's data from the Opportunity Atlas and some recent studies that have been, that have been looking at that data, um, folks might assume that kids that grow up having better opportunity than their parents have, and thus having greater mo economic mobility, what might be coming from urban and suburban areas, but actually, generally speaking, rural youth are, have greater economic opportunity um, than in other places. And that is in large part because of better social connectivity and um, job matching, which really points to the strength and opportunity of local solutions, local policies and, and solutions that drive that opportunity. Thank you. Uh, before we move to our open discussion, the next part of our uh, hour here with you all today, um, I want to set the stage with a short clip about improving opportunities in rural communities in innovative ways. Uh, the clip comes from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and it shows how business owners in Allen County, Kansas, which is not far from where my family settled way back in the 1800s, I should point out, um, are addressing the needs in their community. Uh, we're going to hear first from a man named Joe Works. Joe Works has a servant's heart. In 2010, when the national economy was in recession, his company, B&W Trailer Hitches, saw a dramatic drop-off in sales. What Joe chose to do, rather than lay his friends and neighbors off, he put them to work in the communities. I think the desire to give back to the community came before B&W. I think that was just part of the way our family was built. And that's something that's contagious. That has influenced Ray Maloney in La Harp. I have a recycling center. And we do everything from aluminum cans to combines. If it's metal, we'll buy it. Well, I looked around the area and decided that we needed some workers in, around here. You know, people that knew how to do things with their hands. So he put his money where his mouth is by buying a former lumberyard complex and donating buildings on that complex so that it could become the Regional Rural Technology Center. Well, it took some prodding, you know, to, to, to get this thing going. So when we go through here, we're going to have our 21-inch boards run past our 17-inch boards. Well, right now we have construction trades going on, sponsored by uh, Fort Scott Community College. Thanks to a grant from the Goppert Group, Neosho County College is on board with welding. I know we have 20 kids in the construction program, and I know there's both classes of welding are full. Okay, like 27 in the welding is what? Yeah. Keep the jobs here. Keep them here. That's what we're hoping to do. Train kids and try to keep them home. Well, and that's partic particularly important in a, in a county like Allen County, which uh, has lost about 1,000 people over the last decade. Uh, it's down to about 13,000 people. It's a very uh, sparsely populated part of Kansas. Um, Katrina, can you talk more about the Rural Technology Center and other innovative programs like we just saw in the clip? 
Yeah, well, I would highlight that Allen County is is one example, and we've we've elevated through our Culture of Health Prize several communities and, and actually many rural communities that bring to life different solutions uh, that really address social and economic opportunity and advance health. So I think they are great local stories to learn from. Um, there are a few other examples that I'd like to lift up as particularly promising models that, that could be learned from. One is Project ECHO, which is a telementoring program. It was originally designed to provide, uh, expand access to specialty care for hepatitis C. Um, telementoring being providing training over To professionals in very specific specialty areas. Mm -hmm. um, and it was an originally developed for hepatitis C, but has been expanded across many different issue areas. And that started in New Mexico? It did. Right. Um, and it's gone across Universities. not just the country, but across the world, um, and has expanded outside of healthcare issues into things like special education and, and different specialties. Um, and right now it's being used in 30 states across the country, hmm. to specifically to increase access to quality care for and treatment for opioid addiction and drug abuse. Um, and but I think it's it's a very useful model to expand, and it's an evidence-based model <coughs> to expand uh, issues and and care specialty across rural areas in particular. Um, but aside from thinking about healthcare models and um, and and healthcare settings in particular, I also wanted to elevate a group of organizations that's working across rural America. Um, they are calling themselves the Persistent Poverty Working Group, and it's a group of community development institutions and economic development institutions across the country that are working in the Deep South to close banking deserts. Um, as we talk about food deserts, there are places that nobody has access to a bank account or, or credit. There are folks working along the U.S.-Mexico border in unincorporated areas to um, provide solutions that counteract um, predatory payday lending um, and actually provide some access to uh, to credit in those ways and folks working in in the center of the US in Arkansas and the and the south to address some of the the greatest infrastructure needs around water and sewage that you can't do much development in a community if, if you have sewage running down your your streets um, and and folks working to, to increase capacity and and increase access to affordable and quality housing, for example, in Native communities across the country and in central Appalachia. Um, and so I think we, we've seen that these organizations that are working at regional scale across jurisdictional lines, across issue areas, across racial ethnic groups, have found solutions that work in those places. And so if there are ways that national or state or, or other um, folks can, t can connect to and support and enable those local solutions that are already that are already underway and showing a lot of promise and could just use um, more enablers. Mm -hmm. David, you and I were talking before uh, we came in here today about automation <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the link between um, automation and opioids. Um, is there a link? Uh, <laughs> we think there is, and, and just to give a quick explanation. Yeah, explain how that works. Yeah. Um, <laughs> The, uh, we need to understand the mix of employment, people actually working jobs. Uh, in rural areas, um, the largest component, the largest percentage of people working still primarily work in manufacturing. Um, and that's around 
depending, and especially in the survey area, we're looking at Appalachia, Midwest and South, uh, it, it's still around 25 to 30% of the workforce works in manufacturing or some components of that. And um, that's diverged uh, more uh, than the rest of the states. Uh, if you look at the em employment mix, uh, it's probably around 10% or less the rest of the state works in manufacturing or statewide is less than that. So you see a preponderance uh, of still in manufacturing. And um, th th then we also have to look at uh, jobs, job losses. And uh, there's been a lot of news the last couple of years about that. But the fact of the matter is different studies show different numbers, but really anywhere from 60 to 80% of job losses uh, are really due to automation, not due to offshoring. That's due to automation. And we estimate it closer to the 80% number. And um, so that's, that's there. So we, we're also taking a really hard look at uh, occupations that are vulnerable to, to automation and also occupations vulnerable to offshoring. But uh, the, the bigger risk for occupations is in the automation, up to 60% in a lot of counties, those occupations are vulnerable to, to automation. And the, the concentration is in manufacturing. So you have manufacturing in rural communities, vulnerable populations to, to uh, automation. And the, the segment of the population that's most vulnerable are the, the segments that have the least education, you know, that the, the studies are proving us out. So um, you can see, and, and then we've also just uh, published a study that, that does show just the stress of a threat of automation as spiraling impacts on the family and on the community. So these are all real challenges the community has to face. And, and, and so that is, is you, know, you know, we're just exploring what this all means but a very quick answer is robust education and looking at those kinds of things. So that's a quick explanation of the impacts of automation. I just want to follow up on the study you just talked about when you said that just the stress of automation coming. How are people aware that that's about to happen? I mean, is, how did you measure that? Um, the, um, the way it's, I mean, you, we know that the, we know the automation threat is there. People in the workplace are aware of the automation. It, it, it's a threat. It, it's the way it's treated. They, they see equipment come in and they think, well, this time it's my turn. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, it's a very visceral And we were talking about reaction. driverless cars too. And, and driverless, driverless cars and, and driverless and, trucks. And, yeah. and that, that's another uh, policy issue that, that really forces us to, to understand, yes, there is a tactical need, for example, truck drivers. There is a tactical need. And a lot of states and communities are putting millions of dollars into training for truck drivers. But we also know that um, strategically, we are going to get driverless technology sooner than later. And so what are we doing to address the tactical need, but strategically preparing that workforce for whatever other uh, job demands might be out there. And I, I'm wondering if we're paying enough attention to that strategic imperative of 
of really well-rounded training and education, uh, basically learning to learn or that broader set of mm -hmm. skills that the, uh, you know, the reasoning skills and comparative analysis skills, the uh, critical math skills and those types of things. I want to get to opioids in a minute, but before I do, Ted, uh, one, one solution that's often talked about is uh, and tried are economic zones and tax breaks in various states. You know, um, how is that working? Is that a viable solution still? Does it have an effect? You know, I, I think part of the problem is that we tend to try to compartmentalize the, the answers to the complex problems that we face. And when it comes to economic development and when it comes to health care and when it comes to dealing with the opioid crisis, uh, I, th I think we need to understand that we need a more comprehensive, holistic approach. Uh, I would use the phrase provide wraparound services. Um, um, it, 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 it has been estimated that in terms of rural health care, um, and this, uh, this data comes from the National Organization of State Offices of Rural Health Care, by the way, um, they say that about uh, 20 percent uh, of the healthcare-related problems are attributed to access to healthcare. About 30% can be attributed to uh, behaviors, health behaviors. And perhaps up to 50% as a result of socioeconomic and environmental factors. And uh, so I think we need an approach that is that that understands the breadth of the problem, and I would I would try to illustrate that by just sharing with you uh, uh, an experience I had a few months ago. I was driving on a cold day from Columbus, Ohio, to Athens, Ohio, to teach a class. I passed a, a fellow standing alongside the road hitchhiking. I stopped and picked him up, um, and we chatted as we were driving along. Um, he told me he was trying to get to drug treatment. He told me he had just recently got, gotten out of prison. Uh, he told me he was alienated from his daughter. And he said to me, you know, I wish I had a car because if I had a car, it'd be easier to get a job. And, and I, I think about that fella a lot. I, I share that story a lot. Because here's an individual who ha has a life situation, having been caught up in drugs, having gone to prison, um, having gotten a felony, which makes it difficult to get a job once you're out of prison, not having a car, having to hitchhike to drug treatment on a cold winter morning. And um, I think, uh, you know, I think he illustrates part of the problem that so many people in rural areas face. There are transportation difficulties, job, uh, lack of job opportunities, lack of access to technology. We were talking earlier about so many communities not having access to broadband technologies. Um, and, 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 and so um, I, think, I think we really need to not focus just specifically on a person's drug uh, behavior, um, but I think we need to look at at, at services that provide support. Um, many people, I think most people, who do get into drug treatment, 
have periods of relapse. Uh, and, and, and so a short-term answer is, is not likely to solve the problem. We need to look at this problem uh, holistically, comprehensively, and, uh, and understand that there are, there are many factors that go into uh, a person's getting caught up into this kind of addiction and many factors that go into uh, their efforts to uh, get out of this and, and, and to live a, a healthy life. Well, um, we saw in the, the video earlier, uh, the government's pouring more, the federal government is about to pour a lot more money into treatment uh, and prevention. Uh, yet, Bob, you and I were talking about uh, public support for treatment is actually fairly low. What do we know about public support for that kind of r treatment that, that Governor Strickland is advocating? So, in, in the middle of an epidemic, there's a lot of public support at the moment for throwing some money at this, sure. but there's not a great deal of understanding of what the it is. So, a large share of the public thinks this is a short-term treatable problem. Uh, and so, at some time, they're going to wake up and find out that this is very long-term and want to know why. Uh, uh, about that. Uh, an issue I was going to raise later, but let me raise it very quickly because it's very worrisome in, in the long term. Uh, we asked uh, in another survey uh, people about how would you measure the success of treatment? And the number one thing was, well, going back to work. Well, those of you familiar, if you are a recovering alcoholic, you are protected by federal and state laws. Uh, your employer, if you slip, can fire you. At the moment, a very large number of employers uh, do not have to rehire you back and could easily fire you if you slip back. So we're talking about, in the public's mind, spending hundreds of millions of dollars and you're going to go back to work. But we haven't uh, found employers that are willing to take people who tested uh, positive on a, on a dr drug issue. So we're at a point of view, this is a crisis that people want to spend money on, but there's not an understanding about Ted said about the long-term nature of the treatment, what they are uh, 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 for this, and also the employment implications. If we're going to solve rural America, people have to go back to work and they have to be protected if they're in treatment. So uh, you could find a public backlash three or four years down the line if they think this is something that's close to antibiotics. Three months of treatment, mm -hmm. you're back, uh, when in fact it's not. And that is just the worrisome thing. You don't see it on the front because the president said it's crisis, let's spend money on it. But it could be three or four years from now if there's not a better understanding and also if people who are in treatment can't go back to work. That could be a very big political issue. But isn't the arc, I'm, I'm looking at a question we have, uh, we got from online, isn't the arc of, in our political system right now, the, the $3 billion expansion notwithstanding, isn't the arc toward more criminalization or supporting more uh, punitive measures um, against drug well, users? All the polls go the other way around. They do? They're closer to the governor. Oh, they are. Uh, so uh, we actually compared attitudes towards when we had the big uh, cocaine and other well, then, uh, outbreaks, and they're all shift. The majority of people say treatment and not prison. That's different if you're saying you're selling large sections yes. of it. But there's been incredible, uh, even though, and that's the problem, they don't know what the it is. But they've absolutely decided by filling people, filling prisons up is not, is not the answer. So there's definitely been a societal shift to treatment. Well, then why did the Ohio measure fail so uh, badly? Well, uh, it, was, it was probably not um, crafted 
uh, as uh, as it should have been. But the idea behind it is a, is a sound idea, I believe, and I, it is my hope that the legislature will, you know, will take this up. But uh, if we can prevent people from getting felony records, um, if, if, if we can deal with them at the local level rather than sending them to a state prison, um, if, if we can have um, a, an array of appropriate um, data-driven medically assisted treatments um, if, if, if we do those things um, I think we can have an impact um, it, it is it is very very difficult I've worked in a prison for a number of years as a psychologist it is very difficult if you have a prison record uh, and you're looking for a job it, it just is and and we have massive numbers of our citizens now who who have felony records, and, um, and 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 so the idea is to is to try to recognize that these addictions are 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 medically um, related medical conditions, um, and I think one of the reasons, Bob, um, that that you say that people are now more big shift um, yeah. shifting toward treatment rather than prison is that. It has impacted so many yeah. people, and and we're talking today about rural Ohio, and and you know, and m maybe some of the more economically uh, distressed areas of our country, but but this addiction problem has affected every strata of society, um, and um, I think more and more individuals are coming to recognize that uh, if they aren't at risk as an individual. Uh, their family is at risk. Their neighbors uh, are at risk, and um, and we're not going to punish our way out of it. Um, we we need to provide uh, appropriate treatments. Uh, before I, I move off of, of opioids and drugs, um, our poll found in rural America a, a somewhat, to me at least, surprising number of people who said they had been personally affected. Uh, by the opioid crisis, and and we should not forget, meth is resurging in many yes, part right. of the the country. Um, what did what did the poll find? Uh, so you had one in four people who were somebody that they re really knew. One in uh, four. Uh, for and that, there was an age difference. Yes. I'm remembering. Uh, uh, yes, I mean younger people uh, are are much more frequent. A, a, a quick clarification: many people, particularly if they're older, can separate out the type of drug. That you're using. So in Kansas, uh, uh, meth is a much bigger issue. And people were worried, well, they didn't say uh, meth. Uh, people just say, my God, they have a drug problem. Uh, they don't go down and look at what the test results are. So, but. This it, explains why we lumped all of these yes, together. Yes, absolutely right. Because it was an open ended question. Yeah, and so people want exactly what is the brand that they're addicted to. Uh, it's not, not that, but it's absolutely, and people know very much personally, and they're very worried about it. Uh, because it's spreading among people that they, they really know. Uh, and uh, without getting whether or not it causes the economy or others, it's just very hard to envision uh, uh, economics things coming back if you somehow together can't get that under control because it's so spreading across so many communities. Right. Uh, let me turn to another question from the web before I go to the audience. Uh, Roger Valdez, um, I hope I have that pronounced right, uh, is director of Seattle for Growth, 
uh, wrote in and said, in Washington state, rural counties have higher levels of poverty, lower vacancy rates, older buildings, lower wages, and higher rates of unemployment. However, state-level subsidies are going to fund nonprofit housing construction in urban areas, especially Seattle. Uh, can you con can someone on the panel comment on this and discuss a bit about housing and what can be done to address this growing problem among people living and working in rural areas? I'll, I'll take an attempt at that. Um, in, in Indiana, which we of course study more closely, but I think this is typical of what what we're seeing. Um, there is um, th there are two things going on. There there is a demand in rural communities, uh, a perceived demand in rural communities, of market rate housing that, that people are talking about, new home construction, um, and um, and so there, we have task forces and uh, different initiatives trying to address that. But we also have a. Uh, a really, really high uh, population or uh, stock of, of abandoned homes in these in these communities, and um, you can have both at the same time. But what we're beginning to understand is that huge oversupply of stock impacts the co the the price of the house, and in. 41 of the rural counties that we studied, uh, the cost of building a new home is higher than what it can sell for. And uh, unless we deal with that stock of homes that realtors don't count, but the market counts, that, that, that's, that's one of the first things we have to do. So uh, Communities are trying to get ahead of that and trying to deal with that stock first. So that, that's from the market mechanism approach. And I, I know, uh, especially after the ARA and the, the recession and the, the programs for that, there, there was a lot of effort to, to deal with that issue, but that's still a huge issue that we need to deal with. And then we also have to look at different, these are state level issues and community level issues. Uh, what kind of tax structures are inhibiting uh, the ability to rent homes, and, uh, it, and, and you know that could be a, a response to a, a proactive response to threats of gentrification, and we, it, it, this is something that it, it's kind of like um, the jobs issue. We know there are issues; there, housing is an issue, but there's so many layers we have to unpeel that we really need to understand. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, do we have any questions from the audience? Please wait for the microphone, which Lisa Merowitz, our great producer, is bringing. There you go. Um, hi, my name is Leila Ramani. I'm a program manager here at the Chan School. Um, I really commend uh, um, Bob Strickland, what you said on um, the approach to address this not with incarceration, but with dealing with this issue locally. Um, I have a question f for both of you, actually. What research has been done or conversations have been had about this change in mentality of how to approach this issue compared to minority communities elsewhere in history in the US and the fact that incarceration was a big part of addressing the crack addictions in the, 18, in the 80s. How could, is, has that been a frank conversation? 
Um, I think what you're referring to is um, uh, some people believe, and I think correctly so, that uh, when the crack uh, epidemic exploded, um, th that was a very hard line. Uh, a lot of people were incarcerated. And, um, and our, you know, our drug laws and our punishments have not always been consistent. I mean, that was obvious in the discrepancy between crack cocaine and powder cocaine, for example. And now there does seem to be a shift, as Bob said, and maybe he can speak as to why he thinks that has occurred, um, um, more toward treatment, less toward punishment. Uh, I, I would hope that that's because we have come to realize that punishment and the approach that we've used uh, in the past has not worked very well. I hope it's not because um, as, as some believe um, that it's the kind of uh, population that is most caught up in the current epidemic versus, um, versus the populations that were most associated with the use of crack cocaine. I can't argue, I understand your question and, and uh, I, I cannot give you a definitive answer. I don't know if Bob would no, uh, have we, something we to can't, say about that. But we have to be straight and honest, minority communities believe that the first epidemic, which impacted them much more greatly, got a different response from the president down mm -hmm. uh, to this epidemic, which is much more widespread uh, demographically. Uh, people say, well, it's only an epidemic affecting white Americans. Turns out Latinos rate this as a very, very serious concern. We can't answer the question, but from the president down in that other epidemic, locked them up was, was the national policy, and it was supported on the ground through polls. And now we're, we're the other way around. People want to try uh, alternatives, but you can't answer, as Ted said, is filling prisons, you know, thousands, thousands of people, and the end of the day, it didn't solve it. Uh, that could have been as big a factor as, whoa, it's in one group or another. But it just looks like people are convinced that filling prisons, and you even find very conservative communities where the political leaders are saying, we've got to get out of the, the prison. That's not the way uh, to deal with this. And then when you're back to this other question, as Ted hit, well, we have to uh, help them recover and be employed. They'll never be employed again. So I think people have really understood the consequences of fighting a, a drug epidemic by putting people in prison. But there's real tension between minority communities. The poll has elicited comments from people saying, I wish they would have worried in this other era when it so impacted uh, Harlem or here or something like that. The po political people didn't talk about it. But there actually has been a very real shift. Yeah. Right, can we have another question from the audience? We're going to go a little past one o'clock just for people who are. Um, my name is Noam. I'm a health policy student here at the Chan School. Thank you all so much for sharing your insights. Um, my question is for Katrina. You spoke a lot about um, or elevated um, some telemedicine approaches that are meant to address some of the accessibility issues that we've been talking about. Do we see this as a um, real comprehensive approach or is this more a band-aid to address, uh, you know, the real infrastructural issues with the rural health system? Should our money be diverted towards enhancing that system uh, or is telemedicine the way forward? I love that you asked that question. It, actually, I think it's really exciting because I think what we've all talked about is that there's no single silver bullet, right? The opioid crisis is an urgent crisis that's 
that folks are dealing with on a daily basis that we have to take on. And this is one, just one part of how we can take it on. Um, certainly the hospital closures and the, the healthcare crisis across the country is another issue um, that, that we are working on and, and is important for, to be dealt with. But I think also it's important to, to elevate what folks have said before about how healthcare is actually just one small part also of how we think about what, what creates the opportunity for folks to be healthy and live long and, and good lives. And so it's really important for us also to remember as we're taking on those, those kind of in our face issues to think about the social opportunities, the economic opportunities that are really critical, the public infrastructure, education, jobs um, that, are, that are really critical too. And I think also what, what you mentioned, Governor, is that we have to also remember, I think often as we have these national conversations, we can become very siloed in our certain issue area or our certain sector, but in real life, we all know that actually all of this is very much connected. We can't talk about housing without thinking about how that relates to transportation and how that relates to access to our job mm -hmm. and how that relates to education and, and all of those pieces. And so those that are working on these issues in their communities and finding those solutions are um, that it all weaves together. So it's not just working across sectors and across issue areas, but also across jurisdictional lines and into regions of scale. So I think just again, it certainly, it's not, tele, you know, telehealth is one piece. We can't do it without it, but it's only one piece. Thank you. Um, I think uh, we have a few more minutes left uh, for one more question. Um, looking through them here. Um, uh, we have a lot of questions about opioids, of course, um, and uh, rightly so. And this question comes um, in from, it doesn't say here, but uh, when it comes to the opioid crisis in rural America, pill mills are a huge problem. In West Virginia, which I believe has the highest rate of opioid prescriptions and deaths, uh, we have a pill mill crisis. Uh, what regulations can realistically be put in place to increase scrutiny at the local, state, and federal levels to stop this type of illegal overprescribing by doctors and pharmacists? Uh, anyone want to take that one on? Well, we had a huge problem with pill he, he mills. He did as governor, so mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. it's a little hard to go on by. I followed what I call dirty doctors from community yeah. to community over a period of months uh, working with with the FBI, local law enforcement, we were finally able to, to close down these pill mills. Portsmouth, Ohio, at one time, they say had a, a, about seven pill mills and people would stand in lines to get in, pay $75 and come out with a prescription. Um, I would just uh, suggest that your caller um, uh, contact uh, the, the um, uh, uh, authorities in Ohio and find out how we did it. But we actually, the pill mill problem uh, hasn't been totally solved, but largely solved in, 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 in Ohio now. But it, it, took, it took great effort and it took law enforcement and, um, and a lot of time to get it accomplished. I know, I see a report almost every week from states across the country of mm -hmm. another pill mill shutdown. So it still clearly is flourishing. Uh, well, in these last few minutes, uh, I'd like to give the panel an opportunity uh, to give us one takeaway message from 
um, what you've learned from the poll, what we've discussed here today, and I'll start with Katrina. Oh, you will. Yes. <laughs> so I think what I want to highlight then is something I haven't heard us talk a lot about today um, that the poll did highlight and, and um, we've fa learned through our other message testing that we've doing, been doing a lot of um, in the past six months is that it's easy for us to talk about these issues, about opioids, about economic development um, and economic opportunity and in a way that makes rural America seem like a monolith. <laughs> and really what the poll highlights for us too, um, yet again, is that you know, there is very diverse perspective, very diverse experience, very diverse assets and problems in different rural places across the country. And so as we think about solutions or needs and priorities, it's really important not just to look to the findings from this poll, but to connect with the the local leaders working in these places. Um, and so let's sit down with data, um, and I'll just highlight a couple of resources that might be useful in that is County Health Rankings provides county level data related to uh, jobs, education opportunity, health, health, different health issues and um, housing and other issues at a county level across the country. And recently we released um, a USA LEAP data, which provides life expectancy at birth for every census, or almost every census tract across the country. And census tract is like the neighborhood level, so it gives you much more specificity. Um, so I would just elevate the importance of recognizing that, that nuance and sitting down with local leaders and local data to identify the priorities in the individual communities. Um, and that the real importance lifted up through some of our other research in partnership with the Nork Walsh Center in building relationships and trust with, with folks in, in place so that we're not reinforcing the narrative about division. Thank you, David. Um, I, I wanna build on that a little bit, but I, I, but I think um, the one thing that, that we really need to understand, and it's really kind of in response to the poll, is that the communities we've observed really succeed are the communities that own the issues. And they understand, uh, and they try to access the databases and those types of things. And they know that they're going to need outside help, but they, they aren't looking for the troops to come in. And my observation and having worked in the state government is states are more willing to come into the communities that figure out how to help themselves. And uh, because they're showing that vested interest in that. And the other component of it, especially when you look at economic development and also some, solving some of these problems, especially in the areas that, that we're talking about, regional areas, um, we haven't really talked the, the agglomeration of labor markets and the synergy between communities and even the rural-urban divide, it's really not a divide, it's a continuum. And most rural communities in this area are within commuting distance of either a, a micropolitan area or a, um, a metropolitan area. And they're not little islands unto themselves. And we need to get over that, that barrier, that psychological barrier of the community has to solve them for themselves. So we, we need to look at that regional approaches too and where the communities can add value to the region. Bob? 
Well, um, not sorry. We, you know, Bob. we talked. To, we talked about <laughs> Ted. Ted. Yeah. Ted. Ted. Ted Bob. As long as I can talk, I don't sorry. care what you call me. Um, uh, um, uh, the election's we, over, so it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, My so, apologies. So we, uh, we uh, talked about the fact that people in these areas know they need help, uh, federal level, state level help, and, and local level help. And I think that's really true. And I would just point out that um, Ohio expanded Medicaid. Uh, 700,000 Ohioans now get access to health care because of that. And much of the treatment for people who have these addiction problems is being paid for through Medicaid. And um, just an example of how important that is, I visited a small 25-bed critical care hospital in Appalachia just within the last couple of weeks, and I was told that 75 to 80 percent of the resources um, coming into that hospital were Medicare and Medicaid. And so uh, I think that's a, a terrific example of how state and federal governments can work together to try to help these rural areas uh, deal with this addiction problem. All right, now the real Bob. <laughs> <laughs> so surprise, when we ask people what, what should be done, there's a big investment, a big belief uh, in doing something with the schools, in advanced training and technology. The real problem, and uh, David service this, uh, what should they be training their kids for for 10 years from now? And I think if we had a follow-up question, they wouldn't have an answer to that. Uh, they would say, maybe it shouldn't be truck drivers. Well, what should it be? Uh, maybe I should be doing artificial intelligence. But if you're going to help people help themselves, they have to have some sense of what the future education. We had a, a significant number of people who wanted to go back and get advanced training. But I think if you ask the second question, they'd be scared that what they took would never get them anywhere. And so people are going to need advice. If you are really trying to get your local school to make sure your kids don't have to leave, what is it you'd focus on? And at one end, you can have stronger liberal arts. At the other, you can have STEM programs. But I was really concerned that people look at training and schools as the answer without knowing what should be in those schools. That's a takeaway for me. That's a great point. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Well, I want to thank everyone for joining us today, Thanking, thank our panel for being here. Uh, you can continue the discussion on the forum website. The chat is still going on. And um, that concludes our panel for today. Thank you. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forum.com hsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.